Welcome to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. Uh, we are recording this on Saturday, June the 17th, and you are listening to this for the first time on Sunday, June the 18th, which is Father's Day. It's also the eve of Juneteenth. Um, I'm here with my co-host Reese and Alyssa. How are y'all doing? Hi. Hi, everyone. Hi, Jasmine. Hi, Reese. I'm doing okay. How are you both doing? I'm doing okay. It's been a week. I'm glad it's coming to a close, but, um, you know, we're here. We're doing it again. Jasmine, how you holding up? I'm doing pretty well. You know, I'm happy that the weather is breaking. You know, I feel like such a, <laughs> I'm very much like my age. I'm always talking about the weather now. I think <laughs> I do that every week without fail, but it does make a big difference to my, in my mood. So it's looking like summer, feeling like summer. Yeah, today's a nice day. Yeah. All those are good things. Yeah, so I'm going to give a shout out to my dad. Happy Father's Day, Dad. Anthony, if you're listening. Um, to my late grandfather, my grandfather, Edwin. Um, so, yeah, I know it's it can be a difficult day for some people. So if this is a hard day for you, you know, we're sending you healing thoughts. Um so yeah, just wanted to put that out there. Can I join you on that? Definitely want to shout out my daddy in heaven. Uh, it's been a couple years, so this is always becoming a tough time for me, but um, I love you very much. And shout out to my stepfather in Cincinnati, Herbert. You've had a rough year as well, but I'm glad you're still here. And all my brothers who are daddies, shout out to all of you. Yeah, happy Father's Day to everyone, to all the fathers out there. And the fathers who stepped up. <laughs> right? And the, and the new fathers, the ones becoming yeah. fathers. Yeah, my neighbor's a new father. I, I might, you know, if I run into him, I might say something. Um, but yeah, there's many ways to, you know, be a father figure, even if you're not one biologically. So yeah, have a enjoy your weekend. I hope y'all don't have to throw your backs out grilling and stuff or whatever y'all do. <laughs> um, but okay, so for the local news, I'll be talking about conservative leaning candidates winning 40% of the seats on New York City parent councils. And national news will be discussing the very sad uh, death of Olympic gold medalist Tori Bowie. In world news, a positive story, an Antiguan LGBTQ activist wins a court case against his country's government. And in another good news story, a surprise one, uh, the Supreme Court upholds part of the Voting Rights Act. Uh, so I'll get started with the local news. Uh, this information comes from chalkbeat.org. Uh, it's a news outlet that focuses on education. The title is Place, that's P-L-A-C-E, all capital, endorsed candidates win nearly 40% of seats on NYC's parent councils, written by Amy Zimmer and Rima Amin on June the 16th. 
Candidates endorsed by a polarizing group that advocates for screened school admissions won the majority of seats on about half a dozen parent councils this year, according to election results released Friday by the New York City Education Department. Parent Leaders for Accelerated Curriculum and Education, or PLACE, endorsed 147 candidates across the city for local district council seats, with 115 of them winning their races. The group's preferred candidates will make up nearly 40% of the community education council members across the five boroughs, according to a chalkbeat analysis. Uh, and this is an aside from schools.nyc.gov uh, for those who aren't familiar. A community and citywide education councils or CECs are charged with promoting student achievement, advising and commenting on educational policies and providing input to the chancellor and the panel for educational policy. Uh, back to the article. Established in 2019, PLACE supports the status quo when it comes to academic screening policies that have resulted in one of the nation's most segregated school systems. That includes keeping the specialized high school admissions test or SHSAT and expanding gifted and talented programs. The group generally opposes lottery-based admissions and pairing back screened admissions to the city's middle and high schools. Uh, and this is another aside from the May 5th, a May 5th article in the Gothamist. Place originally formed in 2019 to fight to preserve and expand selective admissions policies in the city's public schools. Critics at the time said the group employed racially charged language to oppose changes to admissions policies that would have allowed more black and brown students to attend elite schools. Some parents argue the group has since taken on more radical positions that reflect messaging by far-right leaders. They point to some group members' public support for book bans, transphobic internal group messages, and anti-quote-unquote woke tweets. Back to the article. The Community Education Councils, or CECs, have the power to approve or reject school rezoning plans, pass resolutions about various school-related issues, and work with district superintendents. The 32 councils, which each have 10 elected members and two appointed by the local borough president, hold monthly public meetings. There are also citywide councils for high school students, English learners, and students with disabilities, and those enrolled in the city's District 75 programs, which serve children with the most challenging disabilities. This was the second CEC election where voting was open to parents citywide. To many watching races across the city, this year's election seemed more divisive than ever, with some candidates localizing culture wars playing out across the nation. CEC2 winner Maude Marin, who co-founded PLACE and was previously on the District 2 Parent Council, told the city, land acknowledgments don't teach anybody more math referring to lessons about indigenous people who inhabited land before European colonialism. With her victory Friday, Maron will again sit on a CEC that represents one of the most affluent swaths of Manhattan. Some of Place's ideas have found favor with school's chancellor, David Banks, such as expanding gifted and talented seats. The organization had Banks' ear at the very start of his tenure, appearing on his schedule last March. 
Some education advocates have grown concerned about PLACE's influence, pointing to the views of some of their members, including comparing critical race theory, an academic framework about systemic racism to Nazi ideology, as reported by the city. Several candidates endorsed by the group backed away from the support during the election season. Um, so I'm going to end there. But um, it was, for me, like just seeing that headline, it was sort of a wake-up call to me to see that they won that many places. And just please keep in mind, like these are, they have meetings that are open to the public. You, We really need for people to be involved in this because when you don't have enough um, activity, it's very easy for these types of groups to start up campaigns. And then the next thing you know, they're, you know, making all these different types of decisions for the kids. Um, Jasmine, are you, uh, were you saying that the group or like the people who were voted in are opposed to screening for school admissions or they're opposed to the endings, the screening of school. They like screening. They don't want it to stop. Yeah. So they okay. want it to they're stay. They're opposed to ending it. Okay. Yeah. They want it to stay, you know, elitist, I guess. Like, you know, they mm -hmm. want it to continue to be super stratified with scores and everything. It's, I don't know. It's, it reminds me of, um, I mean, I, I know like just going to, like, I guess, like, specifically high school in New York, it is very segregated. And I know a lot of people, you know, you, you kind of end up in certain high schools based on, like, zoning as well, like, just kind of where you live. But it's so, like, clear that, you know, and I think just kind of, I feel like across the country in general that, you know, certain schools are just not given the same resources. And, and again, like, you're you're kind of shut out of, even if you're quote unquote qualified for it, like you're kind of shut out of the better resourced schools based on like, you know, like discrimination, racism, all of that stuff. And I can see like a lot of these like testing and scores and um, like screen, like just the methods that people use to kind of let people into certain spaces is obviously already kind of based on racism and discrimination and wanting to kind of separate people or separate kids or start, you know what I mean? So that's kind of like sad to hear. Yeah, I agree. That sort of separatist mentality um, definitely can change the tide of what the schools will have available, the type of people, if diversity will even be a factor there, um, which is, you know, <clears throat> against the popular belief about the diversity that New York City is. But in the same context, I do feel like, you know, this is a conflictual thing because, um, and I'm just playing devil's advocate here so we can have a, a healthy conversation about this. I do believe that within some schools and not specifically any districts, I think schools in general, um, having some sort of process of admission um, is this doesn't always have a racist undertone. It could almost be like a, a preparatory undertone. And I'm saying that because I went to a performing arts school. So I did go through that. 
Um, and of course, it was supposed to be based off of our talent, right? It was supposed to be based off our auditioning, not an audition for every um, <clears throat> every program and the ones that you score the highest are the ones that they put you in. But if you did not have a good academic record, that could be a reason that you weren't accepted at that time. And they would defer you to, you know, reapply the next year. It's a very specific situation. All I'm saying is that when it com- comes to considering that process of, you know, <clears throat> kind of just having a little closer sort of attention to what's happening, what's coming in and out, I think that process should also be extended to the educators who are coming in. Um, What type of processes do they have with that? Because as we have seen, you know, there's a lot of educators with different agendas uh, taking the role on as classroom instructors and leaders in these organizations that may not be the best for the school, the district, and the the students that they're teaching. So if that is to be leveraged in other ways, it could be something to look at. You know, but definitely if it is a racist overtone where, you know, they only want a certain elitist sort of group of people, quite honestly, people who are educated not in the United States may come with a stronger academic background. And that could really make a difference in the makeup of that school. Um, I would say, like, I think that segregating children, like, even if you're not doing it explicitly saying like, oh, all the black kids have to be in this school and stuff like that it still ends up being like a de facto type of segregation when you have like you're separating children based off of quote unquote academic achievement, because a lot goes into a lot of that is based off of stuff like your parents' background. If they're paying for extra tutoring or like they have a nanny that's coming in and speaking Mandarin and French to you to give you an edge, you know, and I think that School should not be a place where we're training people to be outside of their community or feel like they're better than other people. Like I, and I do feel that, you know, as a former educator and someone who went to school, like to be a teacher and was a teacher for a few years, people do better and perform better in a mixed environment than when you separate out who you claim is like, well, they're the best of the best. So they need to be in a separate, like, I think all that does is it ingrains in them, um, elitist attitudes, feelings of superiority, superiority, not really having a sense of community because a community is not just people where you feel like you have stuff in common with them. It's the people that are literally around you. And I think if you're coming up with parents that are pushing that mindset and you're also in a school where they're aggressively pushing that mindset, you're either going to stay like that or you're going to have a lot of work ahead of you to like undo that indoctrination that like some people deserve more than others or are better than others. And if you're in a school where like you don't have, you know, soap and water, like, well, that's just on you. You should have been, you should have gotten a higher score. Like, you know, I don't think it's equitable. And the way these people are talking that have won these elections and the things they seem to be supporting, it's, I think it's easy to come in with a Trojan horse of like, I'm concerned about the quality of the education, but on the inside, it's pushing this really aggressive rightward shift that, you know, is gaining traction, unfortunately, in New York City, even though it is a super diverse place. I do agree. I do agree that anything that segregates people should not be 
um, the way we do anything for whatever purpose. I do agree with you on that. I just want to make sure that's clear. Um, I do think that, you know, as we are starting to see the shifts happening in this country in places that, you know, we may maybe in the back of our minds, these are the smaller ways that these shifts are happening, right? When things like this happen with on the community level in smaller organizations, this fuels higher shifts to happen in society. And in doing so, we start to see this sort of overtaking of what we think is equitable and diverse sort of processes and policies. So um, definitely an important story and something to watch. I think a lot of parents <clears throat> over time have drawn, and I'm not a parent on this. I'm just judging from the things that I have seen. Um, they're like exhausted when it comes to raising children in a different way than maybe some of our parents were um, for various reasons. But this is an area of opportunity where we can really have a larger influence and impact. And I think it needs to be more relevant to our lives. It's something we need to think about um, you know, on a regular basis, because this is where our kids are getting indoctrinated, taught or not taught the things that's going to make them viable citizens within their community. Okay, so I want to shout out a different podcast that was called School Colors. And it was about, um, it has like public like parents of public school children that are hosting it. Uh, and they talk a lot about the backlash against like integrating schools and what school segregation looks like and how it happens in a place like Brooklyn, a place like Queens. Uh, it's eye opening, not always in a good way, but it's important for us to understand, you know, what's going on because it's a lot of people that, as liberal progressive as they might say they are. When it comes time to, you know, where do you send your kids to school and like what their politics are around that, it's a totally different story. Uh, so definitely something to um, keep an eye on. Please stay involved in what's happening in your local school boards. Again, whether you have children or not, because it is all of our business. Uh, and again, that podcast is called School Colors. Um, you're listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And for our first musical break, this is We Shall Not Be Moved by Mary Mary. We'll be right back. Brooklyn's mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy, education, free expression, and public art. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. Every dollar helps us stay on the air and allows us to continue our work in the community. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization, so all contributions are tax deductible. 
Please support with a monthly pledge or a one-time donation at RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash donate. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And up next, we have Reese with our national news story. Hello, everyone. Um, So this story, I'm going to read an article that's actually from the Associated Press. Um, This article is by Kat Strafford. It was published on May 23rd, 2023. Um, And the title of the article is Why Do So Many Black Women Die in Pregnancy? One reason doctors don't take them seriously. So one of the reasons that I chose this topic and article this week is because it is also in reference to a recent Time Magazine article um, by Alex Felix, who was one of the four members of the U.S. track and field team um, in which Tori Bowie, one of the members, recently died of complications with pregnancy and preeclampsia. So the uh, Associated Press article reads... Birmingham, Alabama, Angelic Alliance knew it was dangerous for Black women to give birth in America. As a public health instructor, she taught college students about racial health disparities, including the fact that Black women in the U.S. are nearly three times more likely to die during pregnancy or delivery than any other race. Her home, state of Alabama, has the third highest maternal mortality rate in the nation. Then, in 2019, it nearly happened to her. What should have been a joyous first pregnancy quickly turned into a nightmare when she began to suffer debilitating stomach pains. Her pleas for help were shrugged off, she said, and she was repeatedly sent home from the hospital. Doctors and nurses told her she was suffering from normal contractions. She said even as her abdominal pain worsened and she began to vomit bile. Angelica said she wasn't taken seriously until a searing searing pain rocketed throughout her body and her baby's heartbeat plummeted. Rushed into the operating room for an emergency cesarean section months before her due date, she nearly died of an undiagnosed case of sepsis. Even more disheartening, Angelica worked at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, the university affiliated with the hospital that treated her. Her experience is a reflection of the medical racism, bias, and inattentive care that Black Americans endure. Black women have the highest maternal mortality rate in the United States, 69.9 per 100,000 live births for 2021, almost three times the rate for white women, according to the Center of Disease Control and Prevention. Black babies are more likely to die and also far more likely to be born prematurely, setting the stage for health issues that could follow them through their lives. Race plays a huge part, especially in the South, in terms of how you're treated, Angelica said, and the effects are catastrophic. People are dying. To be Black anywhere in America is to experience higher rates of chronic ailments like asthma, diabetes, high blood pressure, Alzheimer's, and recently COVID-19. Black Americans have less access to adequate medical care and life expectancy is shorter. From birth to death, regardless of wealth or social standing, they are far more likely to get sick and die from common ailments. Angelica Lyons' pregnancy troubles began during her first trimester with nausea and severe acid reflux. She was prescribed medication that helped alleviate her symptoms, but it also caused severe constipation. In the last week of October 2019, while she was giving her students a test, her stomach started to hurt badly. I remember talking to a couple of my students and they said, you don't look good, Ms. Lyons, Angelica recalled. She called the University of Alabama Birmingham's hospital's labor and delivery unit to tell them she was having a hard time using the bathroom and her stomach was hurting. 
A woman who answered the phone told her it was a common pregnancy issue. Angelica said that she shouldn't. Angelica said and that she shouldn't worry about it too much. The pain persisted. She went to the hospital a few days later and was admitted. They were like, oh, it's nothing. It's just the Braxton Hicks contra contractions, she said. They just ignored it. She was sent home, but her stomach continued to ache. So she went back to the hospital a day later. Several tests, including MRIs, couldn't find the source of the issue. Angelica was eventually moved to the labor and delivery floor of the hospital so they could monitor her son's heartbeat, which had dropped slightly. There, they performed another enema that finally helped with the pain. She was also diagnosed with preeclampsia, a dangerous condition that can cause severe pregnancy complications or death. Then she began to vomit what appeared to be bile. I got worse and worse in the pain, and with the pain, and I kept telling them, hey, I'm in pain, Angelica said. They said, oh, you want some Tylenol? But it wasn't helping. She struggled to eat dinner that night, and when she stood up to go to the bathroom, she felt the sharp pain ricochet through her body. I started hollering because I had no idea what was going on, she said. I told my sister I was in so much pain and to please call the nurse. What happened next was a blur. Angelica recurs the chaos of hospital staff rushing her to the labor and delivery, putting up a blue sheet to prepare her for an emergency C-section as her family and ex-husband tried to understand what went wrong. She later learned that she nearly died. Maternal sepsis is a leading cause of maternal mortality in America. Black women are twice as likely to develop severe maternal sepsis as compared to the white counterparts. So this article goes on to talk about structural racism within the medical field, specifically about this. This was a year-long study done by the Associated Press, so I encourage you to go look at it. Um, I'd like to hop over just a little bit to this article by Allison Felix concerning Tori Bowie. And the title of the article is She Can't Die in Vain. My former U.S. track and field teammate, Tori Bowie, was found dead in her home in Florida on May 2nd of complications related to childbirth at eight months pregnant. She was a, was a beautiful runner. She was effortless. At the Rio Olympics, I ran the second leg of the 4 by 100 relay. Tori was the anchor. When she got the baton, I remember thinking, it's over. She just accelerated. When she crossed the finish line, I couldn't wait to run over to celebrate her. Tori started out as a long jumper, so seeing her thrive as a sprinter was a huge deal. She was just such a bright light, and people were getting to see that. Tori grew up in Mississippi and had this huge Southern accent. She didn't take herself too seriously. You felt this sense of ease when you were around her. I last saw her in early 2021 in San Diego, where she was training. She gave me the biggest hug. Something about her spirit was just so very, very sweet. I felt her sweetness come over me that day. Tori was 32 when she died. According to the autopsy, possible complications contributing to Bowie's death included respiratory distress and eclampsia, seizures brought on by preeclampsia, a high blood pressure disorder that can occur during pregnancy. I developed preeclampsia during my pregnancy with my daughter, Cameron, who was born in November 2018. The doctor sent me to the hospital where I could deliver Cameron during an emergency C-section. At 32 weeks, I was unsure if I was going to make it, if I was ever going to hold my precious daughter. Like so many Black women, I was unaware of the risk I faced while pregnant. When I became pregnant, my doctor didn't sit me down or tell me, these are things that you should look out for in your pregnancy because you're at greater risk to experience these complications. That needs to change now, especially in light of Tori's tragic passing. Awareness is huge. 
the medical community must do its part. There are so many stories of Black women dying who haven't been heard. Doctors really need to hear the pain of Black women. Um, so the article goes on. I'm going to stop there just in the sake of time so we can have a deep discussion. But the article does go on to talk about um, Congress has introduced the Momnibus Act, a pack of 13 billion crafted, 13 bills crafted to eliminate racial disparities in maternal health and improve outcomes across the board. California passed Momnibus legislation back in 2021. These laws make critical investments in areas like housing, nutrition, and transportation for underserved communities. Um, and furthermore, set further, several pharmaceutical companies are making advances on early detection and treatment of preeclampsia. So just definitely a huge issue that I think uh, needs to come to light. And um, yeah, ladies, what are your thoughts, feedback? It was very sad to hear. I think when I first heard the um, it announced that uh, she was passed, like she passed away. It, there, the actual um, cause, I guess, of death wasn't shared. And then, it, you know, like it eventually it mentioned that it was like complications from childbirth. Um, I think like, you know, the, the whole point, this, I mean, this has come up before with kind of high profile people. Like I remember Serena Williams had like a similar story and just kind of like talking about like feeling like fair and, you know, being afraid of dying like during the, during childbirth. And I know like, um, you know, like I've had friends who are like, who are afraid of childbirth because of that, like, because of like the potential, like medical racism that you, you know, you'll experience. And I think as um, black women, I'm sure like we've experienced it, it just go, like, I, I know for me, like, it's very, it's sometimes difficult to like, want to seek out healthcare, because you're, you're kind of not sure, like how you'll be treated. You know, there, you know, there is this misconception that like black women can deal with pain a lot better than other people um which is like basically part of the whole foundation of gynecology um and right. and you know like so it's it's just kind of scary thinking of you know when you do you know like i've i've when you do go into like any kind of medical situation as a black woman, especially if you have to go through like a surgery or something like that, it's scary. It, I can understand like, I don't know, like people just not wanting to do that because you're, you're not sure how you'll be treated and perceived or like if you'll come out alive, um, especially like hearing all of these stories. And I think with, it's just kind of sad that, um, for something like childbirth and I mean it's such like a like a seems like such a like stressful <laughs> process to begin with and then when you go into the hospital you know not being sure like if you'll you'll be treated like a human being and kind of um given the care that you deserve so I don't know it's just it's all just kind of like disheartening to hear but I, again like it's I know it's all coming from like, because isn't that how like gynecology kind of start like the quote unquote father of gynecology like was yeah testing? that guy I think his last name was Sims like the yeah. like and he was experimenting on as they did yeah. with black people in general with they weren't getting no kind of pain meds they didn't care yeah. if you were in pain and a lot of the 
there's tools and stuff that he developed and it's still it's similar to what's still happening now where it's like why aren't you giving people medication for this why aren't you listening or it can take you years to get an answer about something because people are it's in one ear out the other when you're talking to them about stuff yeah like they don't take you seriously or like take your pain seriously especially yeah i think that you know while this topic was specifically about uh, mortality rates maternal mortality rates i think the greater concept here is that um as a person of color anytime you go to a medical facility you really want to make sure that you're being heard i've definitely had experiences where i've gone and did all this testing you're like yep well it's probably just something and you're like wait a minute like no this is not just something and you just send me home without any treatment or medical you know care like, go back to the next doctor definitely have felt in uh, cheated and, and scared, you know, and curious and just kind of come home and have to resort to my own devices to try to make myself feel better and get myself back into, you know, optimum health to perform. But, um, you know, definitely something that we need to find ways, whether that's task force, other communities sort of uh, building amongst medical professionals to kind of counteract this stuff when it happens. Um so that we know what to do in these moments because the internet is full of, you know, false information. And unfortunately, a lot of people just rely on, you know, any sort of treatment when you don't get what you need from where you go to get your medical help from. And that can cause the other greater complications. So um, just definitely prayers up um, to that entire team, specifically Tori's family um, in this loss. I know it's very difficult to, uh consider having a child for many reasons beyond your health and then to have to go eight months and you and your child are lost in the process um, is very scary for women all over the globe. So I just wanted to bring some light to uh, this issue and definitely send some love to her and um, her family and friends. And also, uh, there's an episode of Code Switch on the NPR podcast called This Racism is Killing Me Inside. And they discuss the phenomenon of weathering and how it's not just about the moment in time when you go to the hospital to give birth or have the, you know some type of procedure done. It's all of the ways that structural racism affects your health from the beginning and it ages you and puts more stress on your system just from birth onward. So, and I think one of the things you read in the article was like, it doesn't, your class and all of that does make a difference, but also when you, even when you consider that, even if you are like, let's say you're a black woman and you have a lot of education or you make X, Y, Z amount of money, you are still going to be dealing with the consequences of medical racism and also just racism having worn you down from the time you were a child. It's very important to have friends, family, people that will be around for you. Um, but you know, it's, it doesn't mean because you're black that this is definitely gonna happen. Um, but there are ways like other options, like having a doula or doing a home birth, or if you're going to be at the hospital, making sure you know who your people are that will check in on you or that can speak up for you. If you find yourself, you know, not feeling well, 
we definitely do have to like keep in mind like it's not harmless like the way people treat us talk to us like it does take a toll on us in the long run uh, sometimes in unexpected ways okay so you are listening to objection to the rule on radio free brooklyn and for our next musical break this is the temptations where papa was a rolling stone we'll be right back If you'd like to listen to Radio Free Brooklyn when you're not in front of your computer, please download our free mobile app for iPhone and Android. 
available in the App Store for iPhone or the Google Play Store for Android. Also, please be sure to subscribe to our monthly newsletter for the latest news about new programming and upcoming Radio Free Brooklyn events. You can sign up at radiofreebrooklyn.org forward slash newsletter. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And up next, we have Alyssa with a world news story. Okay, um, so the world news story um, is from the Associated Press, and it was published on June 11th. Um, it was written by Luis Andres Henao um, with contributions from Jesse Wardarski in Antigua and Danica Coto in Puerto Rico. And the title of the, the article is Meet the LGBTQ Activist Who Challenged His Caribbean Country's Anti-Sodomy Law and Won. Um, and I, I just wanted to add in that he challenged their two clauses of the law that he actually challenged. And the law itself is called the 1995 Sexual Offenses Act. And I'll say a little bit more about that later on. For years, Orden David was persecuted in his native Antigua and Barbuda, a frequent complaint by many LGBTQ people who fear for their safety across the conservative and mostly Christian Caribbean, where anti-gay hostility is widespread. Orden is openly gay and is a counselor and tester for Antigua's AIDS Secretariat, testing patients for HIV and other STDs, distributing condoms, and counseling people on prevention, treatment, and care. Uh, Orden was bullied and ridiculed. One time, a man stepped out of a car, made a comment about how a gay man was walking on the street late at night, and then hit him in the head. More recently, another stranger struck him in the face in broad daylight, knocking him out. That's when he, he had enough. Facing ostracism... And risking his life as the public face of the LGBTQ movement, David took his government to court in um, 2022 to demand an end to his country's anti-sodomy law. Last year, um, a top Caribbean court, so the Eastern Caribbean Supreme Court, ruled that the anti-sodomy provision, provision of Antigua's Sexual Offenses Act was unconstitutional. Um, LGBTQ rights activists say uh, David's efforts, with help with the help of local and regional advocacy groups, has set a precedent precedent for a growing number of Caribbean islands. Since the ruling, St. Kitts and Nevis and Barbados have struck down similar laws that often seek long prison sentences. Um, so they're specifically talking about Section Twelve. Um, and Section 15. And Section 12 of the Act um, is uh, talking about buggery. And this is the terminology that they're using in the Act. So I know a lot of these terms are outdated, um, but just that's the language that's in the Act. And then Section 15 is about serious indecency, essentially. So, yeah, so the ruling was uh, found those two clauses unconstitutional and um, said uh, that the act itself offends the the right to liberty, protection of the law, freedom of expression, protection of personal privacy and protection from discrimination on the basis of sex. Antigua and Barbuda Prime Minister Gaston Brown told the 
told the Associated Press that his government decided not to challenge the ruling. We respected the fact that there should be no discrimination within society, he said. As a government, we have a constitutional responsibility to respect the rights of all and not to discriminate. The law stated that two consenting adults found guilty of having anal sex would face 15 years in prison. If found guilty of serious indecency, which is like the um, section 15, they face five years in prison. Um, Such laws used to be common in former European colonies across the Caribbean, but have been challenged in recent years. Courts in Belize and Trinidad and Tobago have found such laws on unconstitutional. Other cases in the region are pending. Same-sex consensual intimacy is still criminalized in six Caribbean countries, according to Human Rights Watch. Um, Those countries are Dominica, Grenada, Guyana, St. Lucia, St. Vincent and the Grenadines, and Jamaica, which some LGBTQ rights groups consider the Caribbean nation most hostile towards gay people. Jamaica's government has argued that it doesn't enforce its 1864 anti-sodomy laws, but activists say keeping these laws on the books stokes homophobia and violence against the LGBTQ community in several Caribbean countries. And then just kind of going back to um, the activist Orden David, um, he said growing up he was bullied in school and discriminated against. People took photographs of him and posted them on social media, called him slurs, and attacked him physically. What pushed me to go forward with this litigation case to challenge the government is that experience that I've gone through in life. Most recently, so in 2019, he was knocked out by a stranger, and this was like before he went to court. Um, And in the hospital, they told him, like, you know, you were probably attacked because you are gay. Um, when LGBTQ activist R- Rickinson Etienne also was brutally attacked in Antigua for being gay, his church community sang and prayed for him outside of the hospital while he recovered from a cracked skull. It was traumatic, he said, of the assault. But even with that experience, I found out that there's humanity, there's a human side of people. Okay, um, and then... Just kind of going back to the original uh, activist, um, one of the things that he mentioned is, uh, so uh, another thing that he does in his country is um, he is the president of a group called Meeting Emotional and Social Needs Holistically, um, and they often um, volunteer and uh, go out in downtown St. John's in Antigua to hand out condoms to sex workers. Uh, And he said it's important to offer the services to the LGBT community and especially to sex workers because this population um, is more at risk. Um, And if you all are interested in the case and want to know more, um, you can go to the Eastern Caribbean Supreme Court's website, which is eccourts.org, or the Eastern Caribbean Alliance for Diversity and Equality, which is ecequality.org. But that is the article, or that's the story. And I thought it was, I picked it because it's, um, I think we all know, or maybe we don't, um, that a lot of Caribbean countries do um, have a lot of laws in place that are, that basically criminalize 
um, being gay or being part of the LGBT community. Um, so I thought this was really um, a good story to hear that um, there are people who are working towards um, like challenging these uh, laws and, um, you know, like making making their countries and their communities like a better um, environment for the LGBTQ community in those countries. Um, it was also just kind of jarring to hear that Jamaica is like the worst, like it's a known thing that it is the worst country, like for this type of thing that are kind of like the most hostile and violent towards gay people. But yeah, what do you all think? It's disheartening to hear that this is, <clears throat> um, you know, so such a issue still in so many places, you know, within the Caribbean as well, just any part of the diaspora, just because, you know, the struggle for equality for all types of people has been so ongoing and even exists within us, you know, Black people and people of the diaspora are not all monolithic by any means, but, um, you know, I'm glad that this activist had an opportunity to make an impact on the community the way he did. Um, and it's definitely sad to know that, you know, people are still struggling with being who they are for fear of their lives and the lives of those around them. Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely great news that this was struck down and the country is not going to try to reverse it. So, I mean, shout out to him for having the courage really to stand up and say he was going to do something. And, you know, he's somebody that from what you were reading, like he makes it a part of his regular life to not just say what his values are, but he's actually putting himself out there every day, you know, to stand behind his values, even though you have people who have hurt him, threatened him. And that's a lot of people can't say that, you know, a lot of people wouldn't do it. So that's, it's great that there was a positive outcome in this case. Um, it makes me very sad to see people who don't seem to understand that these laws were imposed on our ancestors by like white enslavers in England and, you know, other Western European countries and the way some people will hold on to that, I think is really, it's sad. Um, and I wish, you know, there was, people would be more open-minded and really think before just having it in them to have like hatred and animosity towards somebody that has, you know, what they're doing has nothing to do with you. Yeah. What, like what you said about, you know, like people not realizing that you know, it's like laws that have been imposed from Europe because the I didn't even realize this, but the, the the similar law, I guess, the one that's in Jamaica, like that's from 1865. Um, I also wanted to just add like a, a caveat, um, the, the Sexual Offenses Act, um, the rest of it, like it, it also it includes like sexual offenses, like um uh, rape and incest, stuff like that. So it's it's just, again, like those two clauses of the law that were actually struck down. Yeah, it takes courage to stand up for anything, let alone when your life could be a danger. Um, but it, you know, it is necessary work. It is necessary that um, not only that we ally with our brothers and sisters for whatever form of oppression they're dealing with, 
but to also like uplift them because it is hard work to stand up against hatred um, in any way, especially when you are not just doing it for yourselves, you're doing it for uh, the community as well and the people that you love. So I'm glad to hear good news is the result of this. And I wish him the most safety in his life because there's also that, right? Like I hate to be that person, but the truth is, you know, we have to protect them. We have to be mindful um, that he can face backlash for what he's done. So I just wish him all the love and protection that is needed. We're not going to move ahead with just some of us. Like we have to understand that these are linked struggles. So. All right. So should I come on with the good news, Jasmine? Yeah, there's even more good news. So <laughs> we on a roll today. All right. So this article, um, is from the Good News Network, and I don't necessarily. Oh, it was published on June twenty, June eleventh. Um, there's no author listed at this time. <clears throat> In a historic, oh, I'm sorry. Let me give you the title. Two conservatives on Supreme Court seal historic decision to preserve voting rights in Alabama gerrymandering case. In a historic win for voting rights, the U.S. Supreme Court Thursday ruled in Allen versus Milligan in favor of Black voters, with Chief Justice John Roberts, Roberts and Justice Brett Kavanaugh joining the court's three liberal justices, ruling that Alabama's congressional map violates the Voting Rights Act, which prohibits racially discriminatory voting practices or procedures. They gave their thumbs up to the decision of a three-judge district court order that struck down Alabama's 2021 congressional map and required, required the redrawing of the state's congressional map. Even though Blacks make up 27% of the voting age population in Alabama, the map passed by the state legislature only carved out one district out of seven that contains a majority of Black voters, which equates to 14% of the districts reflecting the state's demographics. In its decision, the High Court also affirmed that under Section 2 of the VRA, race can be considered in the redistricting process to provide equal opportunities to communities of color and ensure districts are not drawn in a way that weakens their voting strength. The five justices cited in their decision the overwhelming evidence of discrimination presented by the plaintiffs in the district court. Alabama attempted to rewrite federal law by saying race could not be considered in the redistricting process even when necessary to remedy racial discrimination, said Legal Defense Fund Deputy Director of Litigation, Dual Ross, who argued the case before the court in October. Today's decision is a recognition of Section's two purpose to prevent voting discrimination and a very basic right to a fair shot. Plaintiffs from the case released a joint comment that read in part, the Supreme Court affirmed the district court's order that a new map be drawn that compiles the federal law, one that recognizes the diversity in our state rather than erasing it. Today, we can move forward with these reaffirmed protections that civil rights leaders fought and died for. Um, so yeah, this Supreme Court has been on a rampage, fucking shit up <laughs> um, in, different, in different ways. Um, so we haven't quite seen too many great things happen, but I definitely think that this is a win yeah, I mean, some positive news for the day. Let's hope they can continue that same energy when it comes to other states. Yeah, I guess I might have to play the numbers or something. Like if they did two semi-decent <laughs> things in a row. Whoop, whoop, whoop. What's happening here? 
Man. I guess it's the balance, right? Uh, who knows? I just know whatever's going on like that. I'm not even going to say what I want to call him, that Judge Thomas is somewhere cursing and if he doesn't get his evil, wicked way. Hmm. But yeah, that's at least one good thing. So shout out to Alabama and the people who have fought for this. Yeah. I'm sure there's many places that needs to be done. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, so we did a show. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. Please stay tuned for more um, community-based Brooklyn radio. And once again, happy Father's Day and happy Juneteenth for everybody happy celebrating. And happy for- Juneteenth. Be black and proud. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and for our last song, this is Landslide by Fleetwood Mac. Bye. Happy Sunday, Father's Day, Juneteenth, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye. This is for you, Daddy. I took my love and I took it down. Well, I've been afraid of change.